This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson, Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. For over 100 years, school districts have been growing in size, in population. More children are going to school within a typical school district than ever before, and more voters are eligible to vote for their local school board than ever before. This isn't just because the U.S. population is increasing in size, as we know it has over the past several decades. But in addition, we have fewer school districts. Back in 1940, the number of school districts was no less than 117,000. 117,000. Today, that number hovers around 14,000. In other words, over 100,000 school districts have disappeared absorbed into larger units. In big cities, the number of enrolled students regularly exceeds 100,000 and can climb to nearly a million. Are schools now too big to succeed? So asks Andy Smerick, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, in a fascinating article just published by City Journal. To discuss the topic, I'm pleased to have Andy Smerick with me on the Education Exchange today. Andy, thank you for joining me. It's a real treat. Thanks for having me. Well, Andy, why do you say that school districts today are too big to succeed? Well, there are a couple reasons, but let me um, explain it this way because it tracks with some of my personal professional growth. Um, as you probably know, I've been a school choice zealot for a very long time, and I remain one. I think that it's important that families have the ability to um, direct the education of their kids. And I also believe in social entrepreneurialism, so I like nonprofit-run schools and grand pluralism and so on. But um, as I've gotten older, um, this other part of conservatism has um has really grown in my mind. And that is the idea of the ancient Republican tradition or democracy, democratic deliberation, um, community agency, the ability of people to make laws, to direct their, um, their own futures by coming together with their fellow citizens to decide what is right for us in this place. And I think that's uh, an important part of the, the American tradition, that we are a continental pluralistic nation um, conceived in liberty. And if we want people to be happy and not look constantly to the horizon and you know, get wrapped up in conspiracy theories and who has power and who's controlling my life, we need to actually invest real people in real places with power over the things that matter to them. And that can be um, individual liberty style school choice. But I also think that this it's meaningful in American history that we have locally governed small school districts. So um, this is a view mostly as opposed to other people who talk about small school districts or breaking up districts as a way of like fighting back against unions or something else. My view is if we're going to have these democratic units that are um, shaping millions and millions, tens of millions of kids, let's make sure that they are responsive to communities and to parents. And it's really, really hard to do that when you have a school district that has 200 schools and 150,000 students or 300,000 students in the case of a couple or a million in the case of New York. Um, so the point about being too big to succeed is if, in my view, success means responsiveness to families, to communities, to differentiation. You can't really have that if um, each parent's view is a drop in the ocean. So I want these to be smaller. Well, Andy, so this is a very compelling argument, but this is contrary to the whole direction that the country has moved for decades. It's not just the 
party in power today or the party in power yesterday, it's been going on for decades. We have been consolidating school districts. There must be a reason out there why we have reduced the number of school districts in the United States. What, why did this happen? How did it happen? Good question. So I look at this as breaking it down into two different categories. One is, uh, okay, so we had probably 200,000 districts before uh, as a nation we started counting them. So the 1940 um, figure that you cited, which is the best data we have, is after a whole bunch of uh, consolidation. Um, and this makes sense. And even the research out there um, makes some sense about like consolidation at the very far left end of the distribution. What do you mean by the far left? Uh, I don't understand those words. Far left end of the distribution. That sounds like gobbledygook that social scientists come up with. Got it. So if you um, plot the number of schools in a histogram along an x-axis, let, let me say it this way. Um, if you were to ask how many uh, schools are in each district, the 13,500 of them we currently have, or the 100,000 that used to exist, on the far right side of the distribution would be the gigantic districts. No, no, you can't have me a right-hand or a left-hand distribution. I want to know. You're telling me that's the the little red schoolhouse no longer is going to work. We got we had a lot of little tiny districts with one little red uh, schoolhouse, and that is gone with the buggy whip. That's right. That and that wasn't just like the outlier. That was the model. Um, some of these early data that we have say that the average school district had one and a half or two schools. Um, so this wasn't just like um. Uh, some very parochial thing that happened just in a rural community. This is how schools were organized. And for efficiency reasons, mostly, um, especially during the progressive era and beyond, the idea was it doesn't make sense to have two school districts right next to each other, each with a board, a superintendent. Let's put these school districts, each with one school together and have two schools. Well, that makes some sense. And there's some research that shows that you do get greater efficiency um, in spending and maybe you can even become more professional that way. So I don't disagree with those who say it doesn't make sense for a, uh, a state that maybe has a thousand school districts or 600 to reduce it. My objection is um, extrapolating from that and saying it makes sense to have three school uh, districts or 10 school districts to saying, well, obviously that means we should have a hundred school districts or 200 school districts or a thousand school districts. Well, have, have that kind of, is that kind of thing been happening? How much of that has really been happening that uh, a, a school district with 10,000 students is consolidating with another school district with 20,000 school districts? Has that been a part of the history too? No, not like we have. Um, so there are unified school districts where some of these things, um, like for the sake of like governance, stuff like that can happen, like LA Unified, for example. Um, and there are some others with that title. But in general, consolidation, as we understand it, was mostly aimed at super small rural districts um, that could be consolidated in order to have better bus routes and purchasing and have one superintendent instead of one or one school board. Um, the bigger question of how did we get to school districts like Miami-Dade with 350,000 students or Chicago 300,000, Los Angeles with 700,000. In most of these cases, it's just deciding that we would have one governing unit there and it keeps growing and growing and growing as population grows, that it's efficient and it makes a whole lot of sense for it to keep growing so there can be one unit in charge of everything. Well, that, that was uh, especially the case in the South, I think, because in the South, 
uh, schools got started somewhat later and they decided that the county would be the unit of analysis. So we have countywide school districts in many Southern states and these counties can be very big things. And so that, I think that's where we're getting a lot of this uh, increase in, in the size of a school district. So you were right about that. And that is a part of the story that two little people appreciate. So for example, I worked for a while in New Jersey, which has give or take a million students. Um, and I've been working in Maryland for quite some time, which has a little less, but about a million students. Um, New Jersey has about 600 school districts. Maryland has 24 school districts because Maryland uh, below the Mason-Dixon line has this model you described, which is school districts being the same thing as counties. And so that's why Maryland, I think last time I checked, has six of the nation's 50 largest school districts, um, even though Maryland is easily on the smaller side, like the smaller half of um, U.S. states. And so this is true also in Florida, um, North Carolina, a bunch of county uh, districts that are much bigger. Well, yeah, in Virginia, Fairfax County comes up all the time in people's conversations. And it's this massive suburban school district um, or uh, Montgomery County. And uh, once again, this massive suburban school district. So, yeah, this is... Uh, this is a legacy of, of the pre-Civil War period, actually. Yeah, so um, the argument that I make in this article is, I mean, again, some people have attacked big school districts as an urban problem. And it's true that many of the biggest districts in America are those just based in a city, Cleveland School District, Detroit School District, Washington, D.C.'s School District, Boston School District. But you were absolutely right that there are, and I make this case in the article, that there are a lot of these districts, including Miami-Dade, um, including the district that's right around Las Vegas, um, a bunch around the Washington DC area, that there are these ring suburb districts that also, not just because people have populated out of cities into the suburbs, but like you said, for governance reasons, they've decided that a county that now has a million residents should have one school district, meaning it might have 150,000 students. And we have to ask ourselves, is that really democratic in the sense that we want it to be democratic, meaning people have control? Is that why we've gotten these uh, uh, you know, parent mobilization organizations uh, in the last uh, year or two in Virginia. Of course, the politics in Virginia were very much influenced by education issues in the last uh, election held, the gubernatorial election there. So uh, is, it, is Virginia sort of a classic example of big school districts generating a lots of antagonism between school boards and uh, parental organizations? That's my argument. So thank you for bringing this up. And so let me just give some voice to this because this is what everything hinges on. America is big and diverse and we have people with different histories, cultures, principles, and that's all good and natural and we can't stop that. Part of the American tradition is not trying to get rid of that, but figuring out governing models. So um, those kinds of things don't lead to uh, perpetual wars where people with different views uh, each try to struggle to get a big unit, get in charge of it, and then they rule for four years and then someone else wins. This is why we have federalism. This is why we have localism. This is why we have a robust civil society as part of our traditions, recognizing that American diversity pluralism demands that we have smaller units so people not, can't necessarily be in homogenous areas, but in areas where the likelihood of nuclear war types of fights between one another are decreased. If you have a highly diverse 
any type of unit, like a school district that has um, 100,000 students, but people speak 100 different languages and come from 50 different countries and have very different political views, of course there are going to be gigantic fights on the most basic issues, not just like school enrollment and placement issues, but what is taught and who is taught and who's allowed to teach. So my argument is these kinds of fights are natural. They're going to happen everywhere. This is you know what democracy is all about, but we can manage that by having people in smaller units so it's more personal, so we can talk with one another, not just go to a school board and yell and feel like no one is hearing us. And so maybe we can, in the ancient Republican tradition, all try to orient around a common good as opposed to viewing um, that we're just at war with one another and whoever wins is the person with the loudest voice and gets the most votes. Well, I'm pretty much persuaded by your argument, but I got to ask you, is this at all feasible? Because how are you going to ever get the Miami Dade County to agree to be split up into multiple areas or the same thing for the Los Angeles Unified School District or the Chicago one or the New York City one. How are you ever going to get them to agree that they're going to carve themselves up into a lot of little districts that I, you got to get a bill through the state legislature to do that? How are you possibly going to uh, achieve your objective here? I agree with both parts of your statement. The first is, I have never seen a unit of government that willingly decreases its amount of power. And the larger the unit, the more power it has because it has a bigger budget and has more people um, that it serves or that it has control over. So um, I've never seen a district say, yeah, we're too big, carve us up. But state governments are the ones that have near absolute control over this. Now, there could be some court cases that say because of um, some rules in the Constitution, this unit uh, is free from some kind of state um, intervention, but that's unlikely. States get to decide how public education is delivered. So if a state wanted to break up a gigantic school district, almost certainly it could. It would have to be through legislation. I don't think a governor could do this alone. And the reason why I wrote this article is a lot of people have tried to do this kind of thing by attacking unions or talking about student achievement. I think that's wrong. I don't think that that's succeeded. I think what people respond to is the idea, like we've seen over the past five or 10 years, more and more families feeling like they don't understand their school system, that they don't have control over it. And unless we address that, they are going to go to micro schools or private schools or charter schools or something else. That the argument here is um, still have public education, but allow more people to feel like they have agency over changing it. And I think that's something that more state legislators, especially after what we've seen in Virginia, Virginia and elsewhere might be responsive to. But there's a real, there are practical issues. So for example, in Boston, we have a very wealthy downtown uh, business community. They generate a lot of revenue that pays for a lot of the schooling in the city of Boston. Same is true in New York and many other big cities. The wealth is concentrated in the center of the city. So who's going to get that to the pie. How are you going to equitably divide up the resources of a city when so much of it's concentrated at the core? Great question. Um, and I think the answer is the blessing to that answer is that um, states have been working on something for the past generation or generation and a half that can help solve this, which is um, school uh, funding formulas at the state level that take care of this exact problem. So as you know, as well as anyone um, for a very long time in America, 
school spending was highly correlated with the wealth of a discrete area, essentially its property values. And because of equity and adequacy lawsuits, people realized that was not fair and states had to change it. And so we have state equalization formulas everywhere that I know of. So if Baltimore can only really pay for 20% of its schools or Newark 15% of its schools or Detroit 10% of its schools, then the state kicks in the rest, um, according to some formula to make sure that things are somewhere between equitable and adequate. So if you break up a place like uh, Boston and some areas are inevitably a little wealthier than others, um, the state funding formula would apply. So um, if there's a very poor area that has its own school district, parents have control, but also the state is going to help make sure that they have equitable funding compared to other new micro districts that are the result of the breakup. But that raises a new problem. I mean, it's always a new problem. And yes. the problem is, is that a lot of what comes from local control is that the local taxpayers paying for the local schools. And that creates this identity between the community and the school. It's not just that you vote for your school board, it's you're paying for your local schools. And that is what historically has been part of the picture. It used to be the local community paid for their schools. Now we have the state paying more, sometimes the federal government, mostly the state paying a lot more. And there's some evidence out there that actually you have better schools if the, you know, if they're financed locally. So do you really want to give up the local financing of schools in order to achieve this uh, a breakup of, of big city school systems? I love your point. And I live this in New Jersey um, and to a different extent, Maryland, um, just to say something about this, because I want listeners to understand this. There are states where the uh, big cities are so low income compared to other areas that this is not an exaggeration. The state will pick up 75%, 80% of the tab for the schools. And because of that, state policymakers and state voters feel like they should have more control over that district if they're footing the bill for it. And that's why you see things like state takeovers of districts, which then create this um, terrible fight between local policymakers, local citizens, and the state where they're saying, we're not in charge of our schools. The state's saying, well, but we're paying for the schools and they're doing a bad job. So I want to acknowledge that that's absolutely the case. And I think in a best case scenario, when these districts are broken up, as I suggest, that we do as much as possible to make sure that we don't create very poor and very rich areas that we try to um, divide this up as equitably as possible, but with mindful of like historical cultural differences, you know, certain neighborhoods should probably be together. But you're right, if there's a district that can only pay for 10% of its bill, that's going to foster long term problems. And I've seen that up close. Do we have any examples of where something like this has happened where where you've gotten a return of authority to uh, a lower tier and that's had these beneficial effects that you're describing here? No, what we've had is along the lines that you were alluding to earlier, which is it's often the case that an area will ask to be annexed, like the, to be um, pulled off of the bigger district. And so there's some instances of that. And as you know, over the past 30 years, because of chartering and um, independent chartering boards and stuff like that. And like uh, there have been ways to create more autonomous zones within districts, um, like independent schools or networks of schools, like uh, a CMO. 
uh, that kind of create a new type of district within the district, like Denver tried something like this, uh, but nothing along the lines that I'm talking about, which is a conscious effort of saying this district is too big um, to serve the needs of the, the voters, the families. So we are going to just break it up into five um, equal smaller units. Um, this would require state action. And um, listen, I, I know that this is, uh, most people think this is unlikely, but when I was cutting my teeth on education policy, I thought it was impossible that 80, there'd be 80 different school choice programs in the nation. When I was growing up, there were three of them. Um, so who knows what's possible, especially after COVID and this, especially after these um, big fights in school districts. I'm cautiously optimistic. Well, listen, I agree with you. Uh, one shouldn't uh, stop thinking just because it seems in the contemporary situation unlikely. But uh, isn't another way to go uh, to achieve your objective, to simply expand out the charter movement. I mean, we've got 7% of our kids now enrolled in charter schools. That doesn't come anywhere near to the goals that some of the most hopeful people uh, had uh, 10, 20 years ago, but it's still a significant change. And in certain places in the country, we have uh, you know, a, a higher, much higher percentage of kids attending charter school, even 20 to 30%. So maybe you could get much of what you're talking about by creating, and, and within the current political context, by simply pushing on the charter school agenda. Isn't that a reasonable alternative to what you're suggesting? Yes, and I fought this fight for 15 years. Um, heck, I even wrote a book um, along these lines. Uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, uh, most of them sad, it appears that chartering has lost a lot of energy. And I'm coming out with a report on what these new um, governors have said during the campaign about education issues. And I'll steal my own thunder by telling you one of the biggest surprises and disappointments is how little Democrats who are going to become governor uh, care about charter schools and how little the Republicans who are becoming governors care about chartering. So it seems like, uh, for mostly political reasons, but so also some financial reasons, that leaning on the charter model I don't think is the way to go about this. Now, to your point, in cities, the fact that Washington, D.C., if someone had told me 20 years ago 50% of kids would be in charters, I would have said impossible. Or Detroit, um, 50%, I would have said impossible. Someone said New Orleans, 100%, I would have said impossible. But it looks like a lot of these districts and state policymakers have made a decision that once chartering gets up to 15, 20, 25 percent of market share because of the financial um, uh, effects that the district starts to feel, they get up to that water's edge and say, we can't do it anymore. Uh, it just becomes untenable in lots of places. So I think we need a different model to do it, which is school deconsolidation. Well, uh, Andy, thank you for uh, thinking outside the box for giving us uh, a new idea out there that we really need to ponder and uh, and discuss. And the first step towards uh, achieving your goal is to get some conversation going about it. So thank you very much for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks for having me, I uh, appreciate it. I have been speaking with Andy Smerick, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and author of a just released article in the City Journal entitled, Are School Boards Too Big to Succeed? This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson. Please join me every Monday when another podcast is released on the Education X website at noon Eastern time.